When I used to do high school ministry, I used to hate doing dating series. It seemed like every high school youth group around did a series about dating, or lack thereof, around Valentine's Day. Uh, I just didn't like how it was every year, kind of this barraging of the students with it. So I usually did a dating series every one and a half, maybe two, uh, rather than once per year. And we did a dating series with the College Young Adult Group about a year ago. Uh, and I realized very recently uh, why Tanner, the previous college director, had done them every year. It's because in your 20s, your dating and marriage relationships change very quickly. There are some uh, who might be listening to this who are single uh, last time that this was recorded and that you're engaged now. Or there's some who are in long-term relationships the last time I preached on this who have been single as a Pringle since last summer. And there's some who have largely moved on because they're married or they're looking forward to engagement. And there's some of us who maybe were in long-term relationships and now marriage feels even further off. You know, I remember uh, my senior pastor at the church I came from, he would talk about marriage often and it made me angry. After years of being single in my 20s or my late teens, I should say, that I had no ring by spring after college. And he used to say, but here's the thing, if that's you, uh, don't worry because this is your pregame pep talk. And at the time, I didn't appreciate it. Yet the older I've gotten, I remembered uh, and I've, I've realized how I've internalized far more of his sermons on the theology of marriage and sex than I did compared to some more emotionally charged messages I may have heard elsewhere that made me cry or made me you know, feel inspired or a certain way. And that's why I'm doing this series. You know, this might not feel applicable right now at this very stage in your life. But if you internalize it, it will bear fruit and save you heartbreak in your future relationships. I usually say this in regards to finances, that boring finances are good finances. I like to think that if I'm doing my job well of forming us away from the things of the world and into the image of Jesus, that you may wonder if I've done anything at all. See, I've wondered for so long if that senior pastor did anything at all for me because I didn't have an emotional experience from it at the time, but it yielded the most spiritual fruit in my life over the years, and I'm only just now realizing it. So this week, uh, we're going to be creating or looking and constructing uh, a healthy theology of sex and marriage. Next week, we'll be looking at singleness and dating. And then week three will be on longer-term dating and engagement. We're sort of starting with Return of the Jedi here and then going to A New Hope and finishing with uh, The Empire Strikes Back. And I take this stuff seriously because right now I'm batting a 1,000 with my wedding officiating, meaning 100% of the few couples I've pronounced husband and wife are still together. And when I do marriage counseling, I take it seriously. We get into the nitty gritty. So if you're listening to this and you don't want to do marriage counseling, if you just want to, you know, if you don't want a marriage that's forged in fire and tempered like the strongest steel, if you just expect a good marriage just happens, doesn't require any hard work, well, then find someone else besides me to do your wedding. But if you're willing to ask and answer hard questions, to compromise, fight for your marriage and have God at the center of it, I'm happy to officiate and do premarital counseling. Now, some of what we'll talk about is stuff that you'd get in a marriage counseling course uh, or something like that as well. But I want to give us sort of the three main things that are going to form this message. Uh, and I'm, I'm not always going to you know, say these things as verbally um, or, or as clearly. Uh, but if you're ever kind of wondering, what, what is he getting on about? Why is he even talking about this? It all relates to these three main points in constructing a good theology of sex and marriage. And the first uh, is understanding a myth that the world tells us whether overtly or, or subversively, is that relationships should be easy. This is a lie we get from the world. That we think, oh, well, you know, my, my future marriage, my relationships, it should just come naturally. It should be easy. It should be this spark and this fire that just kind of never grows dim. I never have to tend to. Uh, but the truth of God 
The truth that we see in the Bible and really through just about any good pastor or counselor's experience is that marriage is hard work. That good marriages require hard work to keep them doing well. The second lie that the world tells us uh, is that marriage and children, that they're restricting, uh, that non-monogamy is actually freedom. Um, But here's the thing that that blows me away about that. Uh, The truth of God, um, the, the scriptures show us, and we'll get into this more later, that marriage is actually a reflection of the Trinity. Uh, that, that we are called to submit and sacrifice our autonomy for the other person. That is actually what the scriptures uh, declare is freedom. The third lie is that the world tells us uh, in one form or another that sex is casual. That's no big deal. Just say, hey, do whatever you want. You know, if it's a couple of consenting adults or more, then, you know, it's all good. It's casual. It's not, not that big a deal. Um, or, uh, this isn't so much the world telling us this, but legalistic religiosity tells us uh, something very far to the opposite, which is that sex is bad. And, you know, I've read uh, so many accounts of people who have a very difficult time uh, sort of doing this 180 or flipping a switch from sex is bad to then when they get married, sex is then good. And there can be a lot of shame that gets brought with that. So the world tells us sex is casual. Legalistic religiosity takes it too far the other way, um, just making shame, uh, sex seem shameful for us. But the truth of God is that sex is sacred and it's given to us by God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. All right, so hear me loud and clear on this. Marriage is hard work. The church I came from said this all the time. Uh, So I just thought this was a given. Yet I've met people time and time again who were surprised that they had fights or arguments with their spouse. They didn't think it was so hard. They didn't think it would require work and effort and discipline. And I'm convinced that's why so many people don't want to get married today. My wife, Gracie, and I have friends who they're sort of just perpetually dating. They never solidify it in marriage. Uh, And many of us are likely longing for someone to love, that we want to love them, and we want someone who loves us back and are being formed to desire what the world offers, which is not that, which is cheap sex rather than sex in a loving covenant relationship uh, that's built on work, effort, discipline uh, that comes with marriage and not just this perpetual casually sliding in to dating. It probably feels weird to think that sexual desire is a good thing. And I've had conversations with you know, many people from different churches where they've been conditioned to see sex and dating as sinful, impure, and rebellious. What's interesting, though, that we see in the scriptures is the whole book of Song of Solomon, or sometimes called Song of Songs, is really just a celebration of sex and desire, meaning it's a good thing to want someone and have them want you back. See, sometimes in church, uh, people talk all about the importance of selfless agape love in marriage. And that's, that's a good thing. You're, you're going to need that. Um, but agape love is really just charitable love, meaning you love the other person the way God loves us, meaning God is giving grace and love to us that we can never fully return to him. That is agape love. But what is incredibly important in a relationship is love that is and can be reciprocated. Uh, and you could actually call that or classify that under eros love in the Greek, which is just a very desirous love, longing to be reciprocated. Uh, The Hebrew word for love uh, in in Song of Solomon throughout the Old Testament is the word dod, which is very similar to eros, but has, you know, similarly that very sexual connotation to it. And that's what we see in the Bible. We see that that love is good in the context of marriage. So I hope you develop perseverance to love with agape love, even in the most difficult circumstances. However, if you love someone and keep doing things for them, or you're initiating the intimacy and they reject you, man, that can be really brutal. As humans, we need love to be reciprocated. 
And it's not always gonna be this tit for tat, one for one, but you should be loved in return. If somehow you're with someone who's rejecting intimacy with you or is neglecting you while you're doing what you can to love them, then you, you should see a counselor if you're married or you know, probably break up if you're dating. And it can be incredibly draining, but God designed us to have fulfilling, now this can sound incredibly draining, but God designed us to have fulfilling intimacy with others. Now, that doesn't mean everyone will get married and have kids and so on. Some of us are gonna find intimacy without sexuality and singleness. Maybe you're asexual and that's fine too. I hope that you flourish sexually in a marriage in the right ways uh, where, and in the right ways, wherever you're at. Because even today, our picture of the good life sexually is that anything goes. And if everyone's consenting adults, it's all good. And the Apostle Paul, the Bible, speaks to a similar culture where marriages were often arranged. That might be different from ours. But people sought love outside of marriage. And that was more or less considered acceptable in their day. People would even have sex with temple prostitutes. They would host orgies as a form of worship, and they would abuse young boys sexually, um, though only the Christians thought this was abuse. So this is kind of the context of which the Bible is speaking these things we've just talked about with sex. And so I want to read directly from the scriptures what Paul is speaking to these people, what God is longing probably to say to us as well when it comes to our theology and our expectations of sex, dating, and marriage. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it says, You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Wow. Even as I read that now, it just blows me away that he says, you are not your own. That, that is the exact opposite of what we are hearing from our culture today. One of the questions that, that comes up frequently, uh, and this passage more or less addresses among some others, is, is people will say, okay, well, why is saving sex for marriage so important for Christians? Uh, some Christians will also quote Song of Songs 2 verse 7, which says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Now, that one's a little less clear, I'm convinced, than uh, some of the First Corinthians passages. Um, it's very heavily steeped in the context of ancient Near Eastern love poetry. So, you know, for us, when we read that, so much of Song of Songs just seems so bizarre to us. Um, and it really is, it's a song. It's a celebration, not always so much a teaching or instruction. So imagine going back in time and translating Taylor Swift or Bruno Mars into Hebrew for these people. They would probably be incredibly confused about lines uh, about Romeo and Juliet or dating even. Uh, but these things are, are, are references that we readily know, yet we giggle at Song of Songs, which says that a woman's hair looks like a flock of goats. We think, what kind of a compliment is that? So the short answer to what all of that means and why it's there and what its context is, is that specific verse and all the context it's speaking to is, is speaking to young girls who are eager to chase boys, to get married, and so on. Uh, and it's basically saying to them, look, enjoy singleness. Don't be in a rush to get married or fall in love. You won't need to force love. 
It'll happen when it happens. Now, there are some who doubt that this verse or the one that I read earlier from 1 Corinthians is something that God calls his followers to obey. Some would even go as far as say that it's oppressive, that the church has somehow gotten wrong. I always find this funny because no one can seem to point to me where exactly it says that having casual sex or even sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married, that that's a good thing in the Bible. And if there's some secret interpretation to a passage, why has it been so secret and lost in time until now? Or maybe the simplest answer is that the early church had a better understanding of the Bible and God's will, and we need to pay attention to the traditional interpretations before we try to make the text say what we want it to say. But if you need something clearer, Paul uh, explicitly says not to have sex with a prostitute in that passage we read because sex is a unifying act. Jesus had the same mindset in the book of Mark, chapter 10, uh, verses 6 through 9. Paul is quoting the same passage that Jesus quotes, that a man and woman become one flesh through marriage and sex. So when you're having sex with someone who is not your husband or wife, you are becoming united with them in your bodies. Your brain is releasing oxytocin that's creating a bond between you two. Now maybe, maybe you're going to marry that person someday and be happy forever. It's not impossible, but it's highly unlikely given my experience in ministry. And even so, I'm convinced that it falls under the Bible's use of porneia, which is a Greek word for any sexual act or intimacy outside of marriage, including sex before marriage. Now that question, or the question that naturally arises is usually, well, okay, if we're not supposed to have sex before we're married, how far is too far, right? What constitutes sex uh, according to the Bible? And I think it's a good question. Uh, it bothers me to no end when I hear pastors use cop-out answers like, well, you, you shouldn't be asking how far is too far because that's, you know, that's bad. You should be asking, uh, well, how holy can we be? But really, that conditions us to see sex as entirely unholy. Uh, and the purpose of answering this question is to do something that Jewish rabbis have long called building a hedge around the Torah. Because there are some things that the scripture is clear on. For example, uh, porneia and, and, you know, sex outside of marriage being a sin and generally that we should... Uh, flee, that, not generally, that we should flee from sexual immorality. But what exactly does that look like? That is where we need to figure out how do we build a hedge around the commandment so that we won't even come close to breaking it. So for example, uh, building a hedge around the Torah uh, looked like for the Jewish people, they wanted to avoid the sin of taking God, God's name in vain. And so what they did was they sort of uh, drew lines further around the commandment so they just didn't even use the name of God ever. So they thought, well, you know, what exactly does it look like to use God's name in vain? They had differing opinions. So they said, look, if we just never use God's name, then we can't misuse what we never use. Um, and so what we can do is sometimes uh, we think, though, that crowding the line, that, that even going close to having sex before marriage can be a sin when it's really the sex before marriage itself. Good example of this. In the New Testament, Paul discourages people from getting drunk, not because drunkenness itself is a sin, but he says it leads to debauchery, which is sex outside of marriage. See, it's not getting drunk that's the sin. It's what often comes after. So he's saying, look, to avoid breaking the commandment, let's build this hedge around the Torah. Let's set this in place so that we don't even get close or we don't do something that's going to get us close to breaking this. Now, we as Christians have largely built a hedge around the Torah uh, when it comes to sex before marriage uh, in things like living together, right? It's not necessarily a sin to live together as boyfriend and girlfriend or as fiancés, but I've never met a couple who's lived together who is not sexually active to some extent. Now, I don't know, maybe you've heard it loads of times and you can prove me wrong, but I have never seen it. 
which is why that hedge around the command is to keep us there from stumbling into it. Now, I came from the kind of church where they celebrated people whose first kiss was on their wedding day. And me being a good little, you know, brand new Christian boy, didn't know anything else about it. I was inspired and I was like, okay, you know, I, I'm, I was already a nerd and hadn't kissed anyone anyway. So I thought, okay, I'm going to save my first kiss for my wedding day. And here's the thing. You are welcome to do that. I briefly dated someone who told me she was saving her first kiss for her wedding day. And she said, you have to be okay with that. She was fully expecting I wouldn't be. And I said, yeah, okay, no problem. And she was so surprised. And so we celebrated by, I don't know, probably high-fiving or something. Now, I told this to some of my friends when I was in college, and they were shocked. They were like, wait, whoa, whoa you're, you're still, you're going to wait for your first kiss to your wedding day? And they said, you, you might be conditioning yourself to see sex as inherently shameful. And there's a lot that happens between kissing and sex, and it might not be super wise to be expected to go from zero to 60 on your first night together. So being the naive little man I was, I was like, well, what, what's between kissing and sex? Like, what, what, what else could there be? And interestingly enough, they were reluctant to tell me. And I'm actually glad that they didn't. Because I had that innocence until basically just before I got married. Uh, and that is a good thing to have. And I want you to know that you are not broken. You're not damaged. You're not worth less. If you do have that sexual knowledge, if you have had sex before, gone further than maybe you wish you would have. But it's also a good thing to have as little of that as possible before you get married. And that shouldn't be taken away from someone. It's a good thing to be innocent of sexual stuff to whatever extent you can before marriage. Now, something often neglected is that sex is almost never depicted realistically in movies and on TV. And once again, I wanna preserve as much innocence as possible, but there's usually more lead up to sex. Uh, there's cleanup, sounds and smells, and there's often some pain in the first times you have sex. Uh, it's also something that takes time to develop trust with your partner, and usually no one knows what they're doing the first times. But that's often going to get better with time. Now, sometimes it doesn't, and you actually may need to do physical therapy or go to a doctor to get help with some sexual issues, and that is okay. Usually a trusted friend or a sibling uh, will walk you through or will help you learn some of the things uh, that you need to know in the last couple days leading up to your wedding. Gracie and I had this experience and are very grateful for it. Now, I can't really talk about that in depth either, as sexual coaching is a huge, huge no-no for pastors to get into with just about anyone. In fact, avoid any person in authority over you who tries to give sexual coaching. It's not inherently sinful in itself. It's just a dangerous road to go down because it can easily lead to sexual misconduct as a leader. It's a good hedge to build around the Torah. Uh, there's also good Christian-based resources you can look into when you're engaged and married uh, if you really want more info on this stuff. But let's answer the valid question pastors often get that I mentioned earlier. How far is too far? So here's the general rule of thumb that I think is a good idea when it comes to physical intimacy before marriage. That kissing, usually fine. Uh, I recommend not putting your hands anywhere near where men's underwear or bikini is supposed to go. And if you're wondering exactly how to picture that, like picture very large, you know, granny panties uh, kind of thing. Uh, just about every single couple, though, is going to struggle with going too far. That is not permission by any means. But don't think that because you've gone too far that you are then too far gone. It's very difficult to do. But if you can walk back physical intimacy after going too far, that is a good, good thing to do as a Christian couple. 
An important conversation to have as you get more serious in your dating relationship is going to be your sexual boundaries and desires. Now there's a stereotype out there that men have an insatiable sex drive and women have a lower sex drive. And that's often true, not always true. Uh, I once had a couple in, in sort of a post-marriage counseling session years ago who were struggling because the guy was very reluctant to have sex and his wife felt like something must be wrong with her or with them as a couple. And here's the thing, you are not less of a man for having a high sexual libido or a low sexual libido, and you're not less of a woman for wanting sex, even more than your male partner. And the reason I say it's important to have this conversation is to set expectations. That woman was likely going into marriage thinking that he would have the higher sex drive or that hers would at least be equal to his. And you're going to have to compromise in marriage on many things. And sex is one of them to an extent. Those with a higher sex drive are going to have to figure out how to live with less sex than they might have hoped for. And those with a lower sex drive are likely going to need to compromise and figure out what they can do to love their partner with the higher sex drive as well. It is a mutual compromise and mutual submission. And I want to be abundantly clear that I'm not saying a certain sex drive is the right one. Each couple's sex life is going to look different and flourish in different ways. But that is the core of marriage, is mutual love and submission which Paul tells us about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul's referring to sex, by the way, when he's talking about you know, the marital duty. Uh, and be prepared for your non-Christian friends to think you're weird and to call this ridiculous. Just embrace it. But as a single person... You are relatively autonomous, and that's the way it should be when you're a single adult. But as you casually start dating, as you're seriously dating someone, as you're getting engaged, as you're married and having kids, each step you are willingly giving up your autonomy, your independence, and you are taking on responsibility or yielding yourself for the other person's sake to some extent. Even Jesus submits to the Father's will. And yet the father is also giving Jesus authority to teach and perform miracles. And the Holy Spirit is moving as Jesus directs, but Jesus also follows the leading of the Spirit as well, and the Spirit intercedes for us as well before the Father. See, this is something nerdy pastors like myself call the perichoresis. Uh, that's just a Greek word coming from it literally just means to dance around, like choreography, being dance writing. It is the dance around or perichoresis. It's a space-making dance that the persons of the Trinity are, are constantly doing of serving and yielding to each other. And my hope for you is that by living God's design for sex, that you will have a flourishing marriage and sex life. But the world does not value sex and marriage the way we value it. I'm convinced it doesn't really value uh, marriage or having kids uh, at all in, in our younger generation. Because why submit to someone? Why, why have a community that, that is in authority over you that you submit to when you can be a fully autonomous individual? See, without God, it makes sense that people would just want to live for themselves and not for others. But God created us in Genesis 1 and 2 to leave our father and mother and cling to our spouse. There are times in the Bible where Paul advocates that singleness is a good thing as well. It's a foreshadowing of our relationship with Christ. Because he gave himself up for us and we submit to him. It's why we are called the bride of Christ. And it's crucial that you mentally prepare yourself for marriage and parenthood as two of the best, hardest things that you will do. It's going to take love for your spouse and discipline to love them even when you don't feel like it. See, our world largely sees love as a feeling. And you know what? It is. But love is also an action. 
It's something you choose to do even when you don't feel like it. Some of us may have an expectation that when we meet our soulmate, everything's just going to fall into place easily. And hopefully you'll experience that to some extent, but eventually you'll begin to argue and disagree with them. And you'll think, why can't they just be more like they were when we first started dating? Your relationship will change with time. Hopefully because you will grow. You may grow closer in many ways and may grow apart in a few ways too. That is typical. The temptation that will come is that you might meet someone at work or with one of your hobbies. Or maybe you'll see an old friend and you think, I wish my spouse was more like them. And that is a dangerous road to go down because it's the beginning of affairs. One way that I flee this temptation is that I try very hard never to talk negatively about Gracie in general, especially though not to another woman. Or if a woman starts saying to me, my husband never pays any attention to me. I, I wish he was more like you. My reaction must be to flee from that temptation rather than saying, yeah, you deserve so much better. I could be that for you. That is a dangerous, dangerous road to go down and extremely detrimental to your marriage. Maybe your parents are divorced for that reason or another. I know for me, I had to go on a whole journey to find couples who I could look up to because my parents weren't Christian and, and got divorced in my 20s. Around that time, I remember specifically a mentor couple uh, took me on a little trip with their family where I was basically counseling at Hume Lake and they stayed, you know, when our church was there a couple extra days and they let me kind of hang out with them and took me on this little adventure in the Kings Canyon. And I remember sitting in the car with them and their kids, one of whom was my age, one of whom uh, was a student that I discipled. And I saw the dad, the husband, reach over and hold his wife's hand. And they just looked at each other and smiled. And, and maybe that doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but my jaw practically hit the floor. I can hardly remember a time I ever saw my parents do that. Uh, I don't think I was even dating Gracie yet at the time. But I saw that and I thought, that is the kind of marriage I want to work towards. And, and that, that dad, the husband, um, he was a, a huge mentor for me. And I talked with him many times because, you know, once again, his kids were, were kids in my youth group and, and he had kids my age um, who I had known. And he would ask me point blank questions about my relationship with Gracie. He'd, he'd ask me about my intentionality with our spiritual lives together. He'd say, what are your next steps with her? What are your sexual boundaries with her? And more. And I will never forget the impact those conversations had on me. And he opened up to me about the problems he and his wife faced when they were my age and the ways they messed up and how they had to reconcile and work through that. And if you're having problems in your marriage, know that you are not alone. Find older couples to mentor you. Find a marriage counselor or therapist to see together. You, you need to get help. And you're not alone in your struggles and temptations. And I would also encourage you as, you, as you get older, once you're married, mentor future couples. Uh, a family catchphrase um, I've been intentional about is that we are blessed to be a blessing. That as a family, God isn't just blessing us just so that we can receive it and keep it all to ourselves. God blesses us so that it will overflow from our lives into others. God's given me so much and I want to receive it well and reproduce it. One thing I've been pushing for more in our marriage is that we would do more double dates uh, with, with you all in this group. Uh, it's because I was blessed by mentor couples that I want to do the same for others. So tonight we've talked about sex, love, marriage. Our world has greatly distorted our view of them. And my hope for you is that you allow God to reform your thoughts, reform and change your feelings, your expectations, and hopefully in, uh, as a result, your actions regarding them. So maybe you're in a place thinking, okay, Steve, you know, I, I'm in it to win it. So how do I find someone you know, to have this kind of marriage and sexual fulfillment? 
that's been different in every culture. As I mentioned, you know, it's like largely arranged marriages in the times of the Bible. In our culture, we got to learn to date in a way that's godly and wise. So this is actually going to be next week where we talk about how we have healthy singleness and how we transition into good dating relationships. The week after, we'll be kind of moving past that, further from that, into, okay, you've gone on a first few dates, maybe you've had a DTR. How do you go from that to more seriously dating and engagement? Uh, Here's some big principles I want to make clear uh, in every message, and that's to tell someone how you feel. Don't play games or expect someone to read your mind or bottle it up. If you like someone, ask them out. Tell them how you feel. And if you don't like someone, then, you know, just let them know plainly and kindly without beating around the bush. Just, you know, just ask them out or say no. Learn to say no and take no for an answer. Uh, You are worth someone's time and affection. You are not necessarily... um, worth everyone's time and affection. And you don't have to give everyone your time and affection. But what that means is you don't have to be in a relationship with someone who isn't reciprocating the love you give. And don't let it get you too down if you're getting rejected. Because you can get rejected 99 times, but you only need to find that one person who you cherish uh, all their inherent worth and who cherishes yours. You can still recognize everyone else's inherent worth, by the way, in a non-romantic or sexual way. Singleness is a good thing. I remember how hard it was to hear when I was in college in young adult group. Uh, Being in a relationship and married is a good thing too. They can both be good things. Being in a relationship can also be a bad thing though. If you feel incomplete without a boyfriend or girlfriend, you will likely feel incomplete at some point with them. It's a good thing to work on yourself. And if that's where you're at now, I would highly recommend surrendering pornography addictions and body image issues to the Lord and experiencing renewal that comes from that inner healing. Even so, I hear that phrase a lot. You need to work on yourself. Uh, It's used as an excuse to clobber people, to get them not to date as long as possible, especially in high school. Here's the thing. You will never be able to work on yourself enough to be, quote unquote, ready. You will never be 100% ready for marriage or having kids. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. If you are still on the fence and think you need to be ready, uh, or if you need some kind of markers, uh, then come up with those. A- ask around for helpful markers and goals that you can use to measure your progress rather than just having some mystical, ethereal readiness. Be able to define it. As the people of God, we don't slide into these things casually, but we decide intentionally in faith that God will equip us and guide us. Also, your safety is important. Get out of an abusive relationship. Just leave. Singleness is a good thing, and you can get help. I hope that you are able to find it. Uh, You don't deserve whatever abuse or gaslighting or nagging you've received. So do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. And there's likely no uh, one person who's special and and made just for you. Maybe God happened to place you and your soulmate in the exact same sophomore math class. Or maybe you met by God's providence after growing up on different continents. Just because your Marfley Garfleys or your, your, your warm fuzzy feelings fade after a few months and you find yourselves fighting when you never used to, that does not mean something is wrong. Love is a feeling, and you should feel that to some extent for the other person. That, that's an important feeling. But I disagree with those who say to give someone a chance, even if you have no physical attraction to them. But love isn't just a feeling, it's a choice too. It's a much easier choice to make when you're attracted to someone in a variety of ways and a very difficult daily choice to force yourself into. Gracie and I sometimes talk about this, and we thank God that he brought uh, us into each other's lives because we very well could have never met and then married someone else. And this also explains why you can be in a relationship with someone and still find yourself attracted to someone else later. It's normal, but this is not an urge to give into. It's a temptation to flee from. 
So today I hope we will take the first step in saying, God, I lay down before you all my expectations of sex for you to reshape. I belong first to you. And I long to love you with my whole heart, no matter who is in my life or where I'm at with my relationships. So bring before him all your cares and anxieties too. He cares for each one of them.